You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book and Moxie LaBouche voiceovers. But guess what? The episode has already started. I'm doing something different again this week because tomorrow here in the United States is Election Day. You know what's going on. I don't need to tell you. I don't even care what country you're in. I know you can see it. It's a huge and constant source of embarrassment for the majority of Americans. So we're all under a little bit of stress this week. Uh, I had a, wouldn't say relapse per se, but a few difficult days health-wise. And I figure win, lose, or draw, we could all use a distraction. So here is an extra-long episode made up of just some of the cool things that I have put on patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Some of the segments do reference the week in which they were recorded and things that were going on in the news. Not only does that provide a little more context for why I was talking about a particular topic, but it was just easier to leave in than to take out. And because these were recorded over the past year and a half, you're going to hear some differences in the vocal quality, because I've had different microphones, different computers, not to mention my propensity for over-editing my vocals. But take a deep breath, grab a cup of tea, relax, and enjoy what I'm calling the Distraction Day Data Dump. Hello, Brainiacs, and welcome to the first May bonus episode. In the past week, one thing that has dominated the headlines, possibly the least awful thing in the headlines, was Elon Musk and Grimes' new baby name that even they can't agree on how to pronounce. And it is written as X space, the sort of A-E together letter, like an Aeon Flux, space A-12. What the hell? Now, of course, parents are welcome to name their babies whatever they want in the good old U.S. of A., though I suspect they're going to have some problems when it comes to actually registering the baby's birth certificate when it comes to that non-English character. I mean, the hyphen in my former married name didn't even make it through the IRS system. It was just a hyphenated last name. There are a lot of countries around the world, though, that have their fingers in the process of baby naming. I've always found that to be fascinating, and occasionally I think some of these conventions could be applied over here. From an article on Mental Floss. In Germany, you have to give your baby a name that is indicative of their gender, and the name must not negatively affect the well-being of the child. Their first name cannot be a last name, nor can it be an object or a product. Approval or denial of the baby's name is done by the Office of Vital Statistics, the Standesamt, in the region where the baby was born. If the office rejects the proposed name, you can appeal the decision. But if you lose, you are going to have to think of a different name. Each time you submit a name, you pay a fee, so it would get costly if you really wanted to belabor the point. When evaluating names, the Standesamt refers to a book which translates to the International Manual of the First Names, and also consult with foreign embassies for assistance with non-German names. Over in Sweden in 1982, they instituted the naming law that was created to prevent non-noble families from giving their children noble names, like naming your daughter Queen. But changes have been made to the law since then. The part of the law referencing first names reads, First names shall not be approved if they can cause offense or can be supposed to cause discomfort for the one using it, 
or in names which for some obvious reason are not suitable as a first name. First names must be reported to the tax agency, and they allow multiple first names. But if you change your name later, you have to keep at least one of the first names you were originally given, and you can only change your name once. For instance, if you're called John and you want to be called Jack, your first name will be Jack John, keeping the original first name. Any further changes must be made through the Patent and Registration Office of all places. Some notable names that didn't make the cut, Metallica, Superman, Ikea, Elvis, and Albin. The problem with Albin is it was spelled B-R-F-X-X-C-C-X-X-M-N-P-C-C-C-L-L-L-M-M-M-N-P-R-X-V-C-L-M-N-C-K-S-S-Q-L-B-B-1111-6. The parents were protesting the naming law. It was rejected. They reapplied with just the letter A, also pronounced Albin, and it too was rejected. In Japan, babies get a given name and a surname, except for the imperial family, where they only have given names. Usually, it's easy to tell which is the given name and which is the surname, regardless of what order the names are used, because, of course, in many Asian countries, names are written surname and then given name. There are a couple thousand name kanji, commonly used characters, for naming babies, and only these official kanji can be used. The purpose of that is to make sure that all names can be easily read and written by anyone. The Japanese are also very strict about names that might be deemed inappropriate, like the parents trying to name their child Akuma, which means devil. In Denmark, you'll find a very strict law on personal names to protect the children from having odd names that suit the parents' fancy in the moment. There is a list of 7,000 pre-approved names that you can choose from, But if you want to name the baby something that isn't in the book, you have to get special permission from your local church, and then the name is reviewed by government officials. Creative spellings of common names are often rejected. The law states that girls and boys must have names that indicate their gender, like in Germany. You can't use a last name as a first name, and unusual names may be rejected. Of the approximately 1,100 names reviewed each year, as many as 20% can be rejected. The Iceland Naming Committee, which was formed in 1991, decides whether a new name will be acceptable. If the parents want to use a name other than those in the National Register of Persons, they can apply for approval and pay a fee. A name has to pass a few tests. It can only contain the letters of the Icelandic alphabet and must fit grammatically within the language. It should also be aligned with Icelandic traditions and not embarrass the child. You may not have more than three personal names, and I have two sisters who have a first name and two middle names, so we would just squeak by there. A couple in China wanted to name their son the at symbol, because in Chinese it's pronounced aita, probably not pronounced exactly correctly, which is similar to the phrase for love him, but the government said no. The names are based on the ability for computer scanners to read the names off of national identification cards. So numbers and non-Chinese symbols and characters won't work in the system. Also, characters from the simplified Chinese writing system are recommended over traditional Chinese. New Zealand's Births, Deaths, and Marriages Registration Act of 1995 doesn't allow people to name their children anything that might cause offense to a reasonable person, or is unreasonably long, or without adequate justification, is, includes, or resembles an official title or rank. Officials at the Registrar of Births have rejected the proposed names Stallion, 
Yeah Detroit, Fish and Chips, Keenan Got Lucky, Sexy Fruit, Satan, and of course, Adolf Hitler. Though they did approve Benson and Hedges, an old cigarette brand, for a set of twins, Midnight Chardonnay, Violence, and Number 16 Bus Shelter. They also approved for a little girl to be named Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii. The young girl found the name so distressing that when the family was in court over a custody issue and the judge brought up her bizarre name, the young girl told him that she doesn't even tell people her name because it's so embarrassing. She just goes by K. So during the proceedings, the judge made her a ward of the court so that he could give her a new name, which is sealed as part of the family court records. He said in his official decision, The court is profoundly concerned about the very poor judgment which this child's parents have shown in choosing this name for her. It makes a fool of the child and sets her up with a social disability and handicap quite unnecessarily. And he did cite the names that I cited as an example of other names parents really should have thought twice about. Welcome, my benevolent brainiacs, to the first bonus episode for April. It is a little bit topical. What is the first clip that's going to appear in any news story or history documentary about this situation after about 10 years from now? It's going to be the rush on toilet paper. If this is your very first bonus episode, well, nothing like a baptism by fire. Or water, in this case. But in some distant future, there will be no need for toilet paper. I am, of course, talking about the year 2032 in the city of San Angeles. One person out there knows what I'm talking about, and they just got very excited. I am talking, of course, about the movie Demolition Man, a hugely underrated action classic from 1994 that sees Sylvester Stallone as a renegade cop convicted of a crime and sent to cryo-prison, frozen in this giant clear puck and thawed out in 2032. His arch-nemesis, Simon Phoenix, played by Wesley Snipes, is also thawed out by the film's actual villain, whose motive I don't remember, but I'm sure he had a very good bad reason for it. Everything has changed. Touchscreen computers and video conferencing are now the norm. Good prediction on the writers there. Swearing is not allowed. Crime is almost unheard of. Everyone wears lots of clothing because the ozone layer is shot. Taco Bell was the only restaurant to survive the franchise wars, so now all restaurants are Taco Bell. And rather than wads of paper to perform your ablutions, they use three seashells. And they never tell us how the three seashells work. There are, of course, a number of fan theories, some of which have more or less believable levels of corroboration. The first theory, which was corroborated by Sandra Bullock, was that the seashells are actually buttons on a bidet. One controls the power of the stream, one the angle, and one the temperature. That sounds really reasonable. Bidets, of course, have gotten extremely popular in the last six weeks, and seashells are a pretty standard decorative motif for bathrooms. So if you're going to have a bidet with buttons... Might as well make them seashell-shaped. Screenwriter Daniel Waters originally wrote the script, then the studio gave it to some other people, and then some other people, and then some other people. 
Waters wrote it as a satire or parody of action movies, and the studio then took that out and then put it back and then took it out and put it back, and they brought Waters back on for the final rewrite. So that's why the last big showdown action sequence has every action cliche that you could ask for. People falling through broken glass, barrels and old cars to hide behind, everything explodes when you shoot it. It's fabulous. But Waters himself, in a Q&A in 2014, said that he needed something. He just needed to come up with some kind of alternative. He didn't need to know how it worked. He just needed there to be something. From the Q&A, he says, There is a scene where Stallone has to use a restroom. I'm trying to come up with futuristic things you'd find there. I was having trouble, so I called my buddy, another screenwriter across town, and asked him if he had any ideas. Ironically enough... That guy was taking a dump when he answered the phone. He looked around his bathroom and said, I have a bag of seashells on my toilet as decoration. I said, okay, I'll make something out of that. But how does Waters claim that you use the seashells? According to the internet, according to Waters, and you might want to brace yourself, this is very similar to some of the things from the episode Boldly Go about how to relieve yourself in space. You use two of the shells, holding them kind of like castanets, to to pull the stool out, to, to grab onto the stool. And then you use the third seashell to clean yourself, which is not unheard of. Seashells have been used in coastal regions since antiquity before toilet paper, which is you know a very modern invention, as we know it, only about 100 years old. It doesn't seem practical, though. Are you supposed to flush the seashells? Do you put them back on the shelf and some fancy machine sanitizes them? Really don't know. That much is never explained. It's kind of just left as a mystery. So, if all else fails, if we really do run out of toilet paper, bust open that bag of decorative seashells from the back of the toilet. And please, whatever you do, do not flush non-toilet paper items even facial tissues, and especially those flushable wipes. They do not break down and wreak havoc on municipal sewer systems. We are talking today about Leo the MGM lion, except it's not one lion, it's several. And we're going to focus on a lion with a particularly interesting life, lion number two. But a quick rundown of the other MGM lions. Today's information comes from articles on Mental Floss, Deviant Diaries, and Roadside America. The very first lion was called Slats, like boards on a crate, Slats. He was born at the Dublin Zoo, and being the MGM lion wasn't his first time being a spokes animal. Designer Howard Dietz had used him as the model for the mascot of his alma mater, Columbia University, and their team, the Lions. Slats was trained by Volney Pfeiffer, Hollywood's premier animal trainer at the time, and the pair toured the country to promote the start of MGM Studios. They were very close, and when Slats passed away in 1936, Pfeiffer had the body sent to his farm and buried there, marking the grave with a granite slab and a pine tree to hold down the lion's spirit. We're going to jump over number two and go to number three and four, Tanner and George. Now, Slats had served from 1917 to 1928. 
From 34 to 56, you have Tanner, and from 56 to 58, a very short run indeed, you have George. And we don't know a whole bunch about these two particular lions. Despite being lions, they're otherwise unremarkable. Tanner was used during the Golden Age of Hollywood, and was probably the most recognizable of the MGM lions for a good while. He was also described as the angriest lion that his handler had ever dealt with. George, on the other hand, didn't even make that much of an impression, but he did have a great big bushy mane. The lions are referred to collectively as Leo. They're all referred to as Leo retroactively because of Leo the lion, who we still see on the MGM logo today, and he's been on the logo since 1957. He was the youngest of the lions to appear. And he didn't just sit and roar for the logo, he also appeared in several Tarzan movies, a Tarzan TV series, and other movies as well. But the most interesting of the lions was a lion named Jackie, who was the MGM lion from 1928 to 1956. His first claim to fame was being the first lion who roared with diegetic sound. He was the lion who you actually heard on the recording. Now, Jackie the Lion came from what is essentially a Hollywood family. His mama, named Stubby, and his grandmother, Mammy, were both well-known performing lions. His mother, Stubby, was part of a traveling show, and his grandmother had been one of the first animals to ever appear on film. Jackie himself would go on to star in over a hundred movies, so they're like a Barrymore-level acting dynasty. And while big cats that can roar cannot purr, and vice versa, apparently the big cats do have nine lives as well, because Jackie survived two train wrecks, a flood, an earthquake, being on a boat that sunk, an explosion, and a plane crash. He was given the nickname Leo the Lucky for obvious reasons. In September 1927, a plane took off heading from San Diego to New York, On it were stunt pilot Martin Jensen, and in the back, Jackie the Lion. The nonstop flight was part of a promotional effort from MGM Studios, and they ended up getting more attention than they bargained for. The plane was a duplicate of the one that Charles Lindbergh had flown across the Atlantic with, except for, you know, the giant cage in the back, and black lettering on the bottom of the plane that said MGM Lion, and could actually be read from the ground. They had to take off from a different airstrip than they originally planned because the SPCA was trying to stop them from taking off at all. The plane was overloaded with lots of extra gasoline and had been modified to accommodate the lion and his 400-pound cage. There was a lever up front that would release milk and water for him to keep him, you know, comfortable and happy during the trip. Jensen still brought a pistol along, though, just in case Leo got out. The flight went swimmingly at first. Leo was calm, probably bored, and sleeping in his cage. But when they came to the Mazatzal Mountains, the little plane didn't want to rise up high enough. Jensen snaked through some canyons into Tonto Basin, but he ran across the ramparts of the Magalon Rim. Jensen opened up the throttle, but the light air at that altitude plus the overweighted plane meant that it could not climb high enough. The engine stalled, and they crashed tail-first into a stand of oak trees. But they were both pretty much unharmed. When it became clear that help wasn't going to find them, 
Jensen went out scouting on the third day and found a ranch, but it would be six days from the crash before a crew could get to Jackie to rescue him. And they found him to be dehydrated and covered with wounds from screw worms, which I did not Google because I'm assuming they're horrific. But little water, little food, and he perked right up. And that was just one of his adventures, which makes it surprising that he lived until the age of 23. Lions in the wild typically only live to be 10 to 14. For all of his fame, though, Jackie's handler, Melvin Kuntz, called him the ugliest cat you have ever seen. But he was also Kuntz's favorite to work with, and apparently just a big old sweetheart. One day, an alley cat brought her kittens into Jackie's cage. When Kuntz found them, Jackie was cleaning them. How freaking adorable is that? Now, after he passed away from natural causes in 1935, there were rumors that his body had ended up in the hands of a taxidermist who had tanned his skin and made it into a rug, which he sold to a museum in Kansas. There were reports that someone had tried to get DNA from the rug to prove whether or not it was Jackie. No report on what they were going to match it against, but it's kind of moot considering there were many witnesses to his burial in Gillette, New Jersey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And welcome to the second bonus episode for the month of April. Only a day late. For me, that's pretty good. And this one ties into the topic on the main feed, something front of mind for a lot of us right now, nurses. There is an amazingly interesting nursing program that I'm not going to have room for in the main show, but I still definitely want some people in the world to learn about. When we think of the most important arrow in the quiver of healthcare, we might think of doctors. But doctors aren't always the answer, particularly in poor countries, what we refer to as third world or developing nations, where doctors are thin on the ground. In places like Ethiopia and Zambia, for example, half of the people who graduate medical school leave the country. It's a serious, serious brain drain. And even the doctors who stay stay in the cities, where the money is, where people can actually afford to pay them. 
That leaves the people in the rural areas basically on their own. Not just for health care, but basic health education. But you don't need to be a card-carrying, bona fide, according to Hoyle, nurse or doctor to do good. And that is the basis of the JOMCAD program, which recruits ordinary women to take care of the health of their village and nearby villages. The JOMCAD program works with India's most downtrodden people, not just women, but women of the untouchable caste, most of whom are illiterate. Some were born into untouchable families, some were cast off by husbands, some suffered from leprosy, most were married as children. One woman was thrown down a well by her husband because she gave birth to a daughter. These are women who seem like they're in no position at all to be able to help anyone, but they're out there saving lives. In an article from the New York Times, While Leela Bayamte is higher class, not untouchable, she was totally illiterate when she came to be a village health worker. She's since learned to read and write. She was married at 10 and had her first son at 13. To date, however, she is a respected authority figure in a village of 6,000. Amti was 60 when I met her, a very thin woman with thick glasses and no front teeth. Twice a day, at 9 in the morning and 6 at night, she set off through the streets of the village of Halagone, carrying a blood pressure cuff and a baby scale in her black shoulder bag, along with a log book. She visited the newborns she had delivered, pregnant women and old people. Her first stop one morning in January was the home of a three-day-old baby boy. Amte watched the boy suckle, then tied him in a cloth sling and hooked it to her scale. He was three and a half kilos, nearly eight pounds, a remarkable gain over his three-kilo birth weight. She murmured approvingly, Don't put anything on the umbilical cord, she said, and keep the child in the sunlight for the morning. Twenty years ago, mothers waited three days to breastfeed their babies, she said, a superstition that deprived babies of valuable colostrum and reduced the mother's milk supply. Today, Omti has banished that and dozens of other superstitions from Halgon. When she started working at Halgon in 1977, families had six or seven children. The children often had scabies and other skin diseases. They were unvaccinated and often sick. Night blindness due to vitamin A deficiency was everywhere. Tuberculosis and leprosy were common, and the sufferers were ostracized. People attributed illness as curses from the gods. Today, TB and leprosy are gone. Mothers eat better. The average birth weight of a baby has gone from about four and a half pounds to six and a half. New mothers are taught how to feed and care for their babies. Children get regular immunizations, and now almost every mother knows how to treat diarrhea and fever. At a busy corner in the center of town, Amte was in the middle of a crowd of about 20 men, talking about installing toilets in Halgon's houses. Village women in India do not speak out to men, but Amte does. In the street, she saw the husband of one of her pregnant patients, a woman overdue for her prenatal visit. Why is your wife not coming to the hospital? She scolded him. The man had the grace to look sheepish. I've been busy with farming, he told Ante. Next month I'll bring her. All of the Jomked women say that the most important thing they do is teach others. Ante has trained three village women to deliver babies. At one house, she quizzed a high school girl. If a child has a fever, what do you do? Ante asked. Cold compresses, the girl said promptly. And diarrhea? 
you give oral rehydration mixture. Do they teach you about health in school? asked Amte. Do they tell you about safe drinking water and keeping yourself clean? No, the girl replied. You are the only one who talks about that. The Jomkit program was founded in 1970 by Raj and Mabel Arole. Mabel, who died in 1997, and Raj were first and second in their classes, respectively, at a prestigious Indian medical school. They shared not only medical talent, but a dissatisfaction with the kind of medicine they were being taught curative medicine, the kind used in wealthy countries. They moved back to Jomkhet, near where Raj was born, a location they chose largely for its desolation. They decided that doctors were not the way to help rural villages. The vast majority of sickness in rural areas could be prevented with clean water, waste disposal, and more diverse farming. Villages needed to end deadly superstitions about health. They need to end discrimination against women and untouchables, and to learn about hand washing, nutrition, breastfeeding, and simple home remedies. Doctors do none of those things. Rural problems are simple, Raj told me. We do not need experts. An array of women like village health workers is enough, properly trained and supported. The very prestige and distance of doctors worked against them. The Aroles found that the lack of education was an advantage for village health workers. They knew how their neighbors lived and thought. The Aroles went to various villages and asked each to choose a woman to send to the program's headquarters in Jankmed, which is also the name of the district's major city, to learn to be a health worker. Mabel and the couple's daughter Shoba, now a doctor who runs the program, conducted the training. Teaching the women health skills was the easy part. Illiteracy was not an overwhelming problem. The real problem was the women's complete absence of confidence. Their entire lives had been lessons in keeping their heads down. They had to gain confidence from one another. Amte and many of the other active health workers gather at the Jomkhet campus every Tuesday. They discuss problems in their villages and learn about new health subjects. New health workers go in groups of three or four to stay with more experienced peers in their village for a week. They watch their mentor as she greets her neighbors with assurance, works with local all men farmers clubs, sees patients, and teaches mothers about breastfeeding or purifying water. Starting out, none of the women could imagine that their neighbors would ever listen to them. There was no magic in it. The answer turned out to be the expected factors time, demonstrable success, and support. There were months, sometimes years, of frustration. Tempted by the soothing words of more experienced health workers who had gone through the same thing. But eventually, mothers of sick children called the Jomkhet workers out of desperation when going to the temple didn't work. Their success in curing a child's diarrhea or delivering a baby after a difficult labor was the turning point. After that, people started listening when they talked about clean water, breastfeeding, and nutrition. Indian statistics have long shown that Jonkhed villages are far healthier than their neighbors. A new study published in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization found that Jonkhed's programs had reduced child deaths by 30%. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. 
New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Happy, bizarre, lazy, confusing week between Christmas and New Year's, everybody. Hope everyone had or is having a good holiday, and I hope you got plenty of time off of work. The other things that this time of year has is plenty of new toys. So I wanted to talk to you today about some phenomenally dangerous toys. They generally fall into two categories. The category of things we didn't discover until the boat was out in the open ocean, and things you should have bloody well known from the very first design sketch. In the first category are things like the Snack Time Cabbage Patch Doll, which actually ate, in bunny ears, food by means of a mechanical mouth. Except that mechanical mouth would continue chewing and pulling in anything that you put in it, including hair and fingers. Or the Aqua Dots, which came out in 2007. They were little liquid-filled colorful beads that you could arrange in a design and then spritz them with water, which would fuse them together. Except being tiny, tiny people swallowed them, and it was discovered that the glue contained chemicals that metabolize into gamma-hydroxybutyrate, GHB, the date rape drug. Numerous children were sickened, and a few even went into comas before they were recalled. If your little one is a big fan of police procedurals, you might have gotten them the CSI fingerprint kit. They could have hours of fun dusting a bright green powder all over your house. Until someone pointed out the green powder actually contains asbestos, which I think we all agreed a long time ago we don't want in our houses. There were slap bracelets, which debuted in the late 1980s, a piece of metal that, when you slapped it against your wrist, would wrap around you. The original ones were perfectly fine, but the knockoffs tended to have sharp edges, and the decorative coverings would come off, so it would snap around children's wrists and slice them open. Then there are the toys where you have to think, somebody wrote this down. They wrote it down and they showed it to someone else, and that person gave them money. Things like the 1960s Swing Wings, which was like a beanie cap that had a propeller on top with a bit of ribbon attached to it, and you just move your head in a circle and it swings around you. And that's all it does, and you just stand there and do your head around in a circle, to the point that several children were hospitalized with spinal injuries and brain bleeding. 
The gold standard of we should have realized this was a bad idea is probably the lawn dart, sold under the brand name Jarts. Essentially like the darts you throw in the pub, only closer to a foot long, quite heavy, so you have this pointy piece of metal that you're throwing around with no way to control its trajectory. So it wasn't long before these projectiles claimed a child's life. Her father was hell-bent on getting these toys banned. The issue made it to court, but the decision was only that they should be sold with a warning label and marked as for adult use. That wasn't good enough, so the man went back to court again, and the pursuant investigations found out that not only were there a lot more injuries from the product than originally thought, but that the manufacturers and retailers weren't following the rules set down by the previous lawsuit. In fact, Jarts have been responsible for over 6,100 injuries in an eight-year period, nearly a thousand a year, mostly on children, many of whom resulted with permanent damage. A ban was issued, but only on the sale of new products. It's still perfectly legal to sell them secondhand. That loophole is also why you should never buy cribs or baby equipment at a secondhand store, and I'm super about thrifting and reusing, but safety regulations that are passed don't backdate to products that are already on the market, so you might have crib railings that are far enough apart that the baby's head can get through, etc, etc. So that's the one instance where you really want to buy new. That was in the 1980s, but the 1950s were a heyday of staggeringly dangerous toys. Take, for instance, the Austin Magic Pistol, which would fire a ping-pong ball not by use of a spring or air pressure, but from a tiny explosion from what the manufacturer called Magic Crystals. These Magic Crystals were calcium carbide, a thoroughly dangerous material, which would explode if it came in contact with water. One company in particular seemed determined to cause personal injury and property damage in the name of edutainment. That was the A.C. Gilbert Company, which came out with such fantastic toys as the Gilbert Glass Blowing Kit, marketed strictly for boys, of course. An actual glass blowing kit that had everything you needed to blow glass in the comfort of your own bedroom. The kit had everything you needed to make window panes, champagne flutes, glass toys, really doubling down there, and even glass beakers and lab equipment. You accomplished all this by heating the blobs of glass over an alcohol lamp until they were red hot, which Google defines as being over 500 degrees Celsius. But you might need that beaker when you get into the AC Gilbert Atomic Energy Lab. The kit was only on the market for two years, 1951 and 1952, and cost $50 back then, closer to $500 now, which the company thinks is the reason it failed, not the fact that it had samples of uranium in it, along with a Geiger counter for measuring the radiation that the uranium was putting off, a cloud chamber with a power source, and a comic book, Dagwood Splits the Atom. Dagwood from the Blondie comics, if you remember those. That's the guy that was giving these kids a crash course in nuclear safety. 
The manual also included instructions on how kids could find their own new sources of uranium and a promise of a $10,000 reward from the government for that information. Maybe things would be safer with the A.C. Gilbert Castor Kit. They spelled Castor with a K, so there's marks off right off the bat. And what will we be casting our little figures and tchotchkes with? Molten metal. Lead, specifically. Lead heated to 400 degrees Fahrenheit or 240 degrees Celsius. And then poured ever so carefully into tiny molds. Because if there's one thing you can count on children for, it's careful precision work. What about the girls? What do they get to play with? Well, before little girls could accidentally get their fingers stuck in easy-bake ovens and receive burns from the incandescent lamp, there was the Little Lady Stove. And it's an actual, freestanding, old-timey looking... I guess that would be a gas stove. It kind of looks like what I would expect to see in a British person's house in World War II. One of only a handful of toys that the National Commission for Product Safety has ever completely banned. These little electric stoves and ovens could get up to 600 degrees Fahrenheit or over 300 degrees Celsius, hotter than an actual kitchen oven. These things were available from the end of the 20s to the beginning of the 1960s. In an unusual twist, a lot of people bought these not to be toys for their children, but to actually use as tiny little space-saving kitchen cookers. I wanted to share with you for today's bonus episode an item from history that I cannot pass up a chance to read more about. For whatever reason, I find this endlessly fascinating. Is it ancient history? Is it the Renaissance? No. It's Ten Cent Beer Night, hosted by the Cleveland Indians in 1974. The stagnating team had wanted to boost attendance and put, a lo- put on a low-price event to fill the seats. The promotion worked too well. On June 4, 1974, more than 25,000 fans descended on Cleveland's Municipal Stadium to watch the Indians take on the Texas Rangers. The two clubs had a history of contention, including an all-out brawl a few weeks earlier. Plans for the promotion were flawed from the inception. Unlimited booze, riled-up fans, and a hot summer night were a recipe for disaster. By the time Tencent Beer Night came to a close, the Indians had forfeited their game, the baseball diamond was missing three of its bases, a few people were on their way to jail, and the world was asking itself, what just happened? Using discounted beer to get spectators in seats wasn't a novel idea. The Indians had used Nickel Beer Night in 1971 without incident. According to Bob DiBiasio, the Indians' senior president of public affairs at the time, it went smoothly. They thought they could do it again and raise it to a dime. Not one week earlier, the Texas Rangers had put on the same type of event in their home field. The need to boost attendance at Indians game was pretty significant in 1974. The Indians were a middling team, the stadium was in decline, the struggling economy of Cleveland resulted in a lot of urban flight. That season, only about 15% of seats were sold for home games, and the city was at risk of losing the Indians altogether. Businessman Alva Ted Bondo bought the team with a group of fellow investors, but he had to put his own funds into the coffers just to keep the Indians afloat. Out of desperation, Tencent Beer Night became the solution. It's not entirely clear how many ounces went into each pour on Tencent Beer Night, 
but fans at Cleveland's Municipal Stadium could buy up to six cups of beer at a time for a dime each. I want to emphasize that. That wasn't six cups for the duration of the game. That was six cups at once, with no way of keeping track of how many a person had bought over the course of the evening. So there was nothing to prohibit repeated trips to the concession stand, giving the alcohol over to minors or countless other bad ideas. Fans were able to arrive two hours early at the ballpark, though some of them had even pre-gamed before that. The beer was usually 65 cents a cup, which would be about about tree-fitty these days, so being marked down to 10 cents meant it was about a 50-cent cup of beer. On an average Tuesday game, the Indians had, maybe if they were lucky, 13,000 fans in the stadium. On 10-cent beer night, there were over 25,000 proud Indian supporters. When the Texas Rangers took the field against the Indians, it was amid continuing tension. During the team's meeting six days earlier at Arlington Stadium in Texas, the game had devolved into a brawl as the result of a series of on-field incidents during the game. In the fourth inning, the Rangers' Lenny Randall slid into second base to disrupt a double play attempt. That aggressive slide later prompted retaliation from Cleveland pitcher Milt Wilcox during the eighth inning. First, Wilcox threw a warning pitch behind Randall's head. When Randall laid down a bunt later at bat, Wilcox went to tag him out, but was met, rather abruptly, by Randall's forearm. First baseman John Ellis stepped in and punched Randall, and from there, both benches cleared out. As the fight unfolded on the field, Texas fans joined in, pouring beer on the Indians. Incidentally, all of this took place on the Rangers' 10-cent beer night, but this will seem absolutely tame in comparison. Texas manager Billy Martin, for his part, wasn't worried about going to Cleveland. The Indians don't have enough fans there to worry about. Martin wasn't the only person fanning the flames. Cleveland radio personality Pete Franklin took Martin's insult and used it to rile up the Indians fans in the week leading up to the game. Rinse your stein and get in line. Billy the Kid and his Texas gang are in town, and it's 10-cent beer night at the ballpark. Cheap alcohol and an anything-goes atmosphere during the game led to some pretty incredible antics. This was 1974, so of course there were streakers, several of them, with at least one young man sliding into second base completely in the buff. During the second inning, a woman flashed the entire stadium from the on-deck circle before trying to kiss the umpire, Nestor Chilek. From the bleachers, a father and son mooned in unison as several other unclothed fans ran across the field. According to sports writer and injured participant Dan Coughlin, the game featured 19 streakers. One potential factor was the muggy heat that summer evening. Another could have been the number of college students recently let out for summer break who were in attendance. Not all of the fans were pleased by the debauchery around them, with families fleeing the game early to try to escape. One concession stand was run by two teenage girls, left all on their own to try to handle the crowd. They abandoned their post, and smartly so. The concession stands were soon overwhelmed, with people reportedly throwing the tables out of the way and serving themselves. Fans began to serve themselves directly from the beer trucks in the parking lot, though there are conflicting reports as to whether that was mob rule or that was the decision of the ballpark because the concession staff couldn't keep up. During the early innings of the game, fans took part in all sorts of raucous behavior, throwing things onto the field as fast as the ground crew could keep up with it, and there were a lot of firecrackers. So if people brought firecrackers with them, you know they were planning on mischief. 
Announcers Joe Tate and Herb Score pled with the fans to stop littering the field, which only prompted more garbage to be thrown onto the diamond. At one point, Rangers first baseman Mike Hargrove had to duck a jug of wine being thrown at his head. The Rangers' bullpen had to be cleared out after someone began throwing firecrackers into it. Tuesday night games usually saw a few hundred, maybe a couple thousand fans, not the 25,000 that turned up. The stadium had only 50 security guards for a crowd of 25,000. They were woefully unprepared. The security guards did their best to keep the streakers off the field and hold the troublemakers in check, but their best wasn't good enough. It was just a matter of numbers. According to announcer Joe Tate, the security people here are just totally incapable of handling this crowd. They just, well, short of the National Guard, I'm not sure what would have handled the crowd right now. It's just unbelievable. From the second inning onward, the grounds crew never sat down under the constant onslaught of items being thrown onto the field. And the more they moved around, the more they became a target for the things being thrown. Fans launched cups, both empty and full, hot dogs, golf balls, batteries, rocks, anything they could get their hands on. During the ninth inning, a fan jumped onto the field, ran toward Rangers slugger and eventual American League MVP Jeff Burroughs, and snatched his hat. When Burroughs tried to kick at the man, the outfielder lost his balance and fell. By some accounts, the fan took his glove and Burroughs chased him back to the stands. Either way, this was the breaking point for spectators and players alike. People flowed down from the bleachers and took over the outfield. Rangers manager Billy Martin felt his players were in danger, and not unreasonably so, and, armed with a bat, charged onto the field with his team. He cried out, let's go get them, boys, and the Rangers followed. Rangers player Mike Hargrove later recalled that bat showed up later, and it was broken. Once all the Rangers took the field, the game spiraled out of control. The Rangers, some 25 men strong, were quickly engulfed by roughly 200 drunk fans, with more on their way down from the stands. The Indians, led by manager Ken Aspermonte, grabbed bats and took the field too, not after the Rangers, but in an attempt to protect their opponents from their own fans. Play-by-play announcer Joe Tate narrated the scene. Hilgendorf has been hit in the head. He's in definite pain. He's bent over holding his head. Hargrove has some kid on the ground, and he's really administering a beating. Tate and fellow broadcaster Herb Score could only look on in horror. In addition to the physical aggression, the fans began pillaging the diamond itself, ripping the bases right out of the ground. Head umpire Nestor Chilek was unequivocal in his description of the rioting fans and players. F***ing animals. You can't just pull back a pack of animals. When uncontrolled beasts are out there, you gotta do something. I saw two guys with blades, and I got hit with a chair. This is one of the reasons the game was shut down. Chilek saw a blade sticking out of the grass near his leg and knew that the situation was dire. The other reason the game couldn't continue? The bases were gone. The umpire called the game a forfeit for the Indians and got out of there. The disorder and forfeit certainly hurt the Indians. They'd been in a position to win the game during the ninth inning, with the winning run on base and a chance to pull their record even. Ultimately, they finished the year with a 77-85 record, fourth place in the American League East. Cleveland police arrived after the game was forfeit and gathered up only nine fans who were charged with disorderly conduct. Most injuries were minor, bruises and scrapes. Chilek suffered a cut to his scalp and Hilgendorf's own hit to the head. 
So what were the numbers at the end of the night? Some 60,000 Genesee beers poured at 10 cents each, 50 cops, 19 streakers, 7 emergency room level injuries, 9 arrests, 2 bare buttocks, 2 bared breasts, and 1 sports rider punched in the jaw. That was the summation offered by sports writer Dan Coughlin. I don't know why I could just never pass up an article or a YouTube video about 10 cent beer night. Maybe I just love spectacularly bad ideas. Welcome to a slightly different than usual bonus episode for my lovely Brainiac patrons. Today is Thanksgiving, at least in the United States. It's a time for travel and food, and there's an amazing story floating around the internet involving travel and food that I wanted to share with you today. The story came to light when a man had a 17-year ban from the Fairmont Empress Hotel in British Columbia lifted. How bad of a guest do you have to be to be banned for 17 years? What could this man possibly have done? I let him tell the story in his own words in the open letter he posted on Facebook to the hotel, dated 28th March 2018. Dear Empress Hotel, This may seem like an unusual request, but I write to you today seeking a pardon. Seventeen years ago, a string of unfortunate events led to my being banned from your hotel. I would like to explain the incident. In 2001, I had recently joined my current employer, and I was also in the Canadian Naval Reserve. My employer was hosting a company conference at the Empress, and it was my first event with the company. I told my Navy buddies that I was coming out west, and I was asked to bring back Brothers Pepperoni from Halifax. It's a local delicacy. Because this was the Navy we were talking about, I brought enough for the ship. In a hurry, I'd completely filled a suitcase with pepperoni for my friends. Some of it was wrapped in plastic, some in brown paper. I took whatever Brothers would sell me. This is the bag the airline misplaced. The bag reappeared the next day. I knew the pepperoni would still be good, it had only been at room temperature for a short time. It would, however, be some time before I could turn it over to my friends. Just to be safe, I decided I should probably keep it cool. My room was a nice, big, front-facing room on the fourth floor. It was well-appointed, but didn't have a refrigerator. It was April, and the air was chilly. An easy way to keep all this food cool would be just to keep it next to an open window. I lifted one of the sashes and spread the packages of pepperoni out on the table and windowsill. Then I went for a walk. For about four or five hours. When I had covered enough ground, I returned to the hotel. I remember walking down the long hall and opening the door to my room to find an entire flock of seagulls in my room. I didn't have time to count, but there must have been forty of them, and they'd been in my room, eating pepperoni, for a long time. In case you were wondering, Brothers TNT Pepperoni does nasty things to a seagull's digestive system. As you would expect, the room was also covered in seagull crap. What I didn't realize until then was that seagulls also drool, especially when they eat pepperoni. I'm sure you have an image in your head. Now remember that I had just walked into the room and startled all of these birds. They immediately started flying around and crashing into things as they desperately tried to leave the room through the small opening by which they had entered. Less composed seagulls were attempting to leave through the other closed windows. 
The result was a tornado of seagull excrement, feathers, pepperoni chunks, and fairly large birds whipping around the room. The lamps were falling, the curtains were trashed, the coffee tray was just disgusting. I waded through the birds and opened the remaining windows. Most of the gulls left immediately. One tried to re-enter the room to grab another piece of pepperoni, and in my agitated state, I took off one of my shoes and threw it at him. Both the gull and the shoe went out the window. By this time, I was down to one gull left in the room, but it was a big one, and it didn't want to leave. As I chased it, it ran around the room with a big hunk of pepperoni in its gob. In a moment of clarity, I grabbed a bath towel and jumped it. It started to freak out, so I wrapped it in the towel and threw it out the window. I had forgotten that seagulls generally cannot fly when they are wrapped in a towel. This was all happening fairly quickly, and it was mid-afternoon. The Empress hosts a very famous and very popular high tea. I suspect that this is where the large group of tourists was heading when they were struck first by my shoe and then by a balled-up seagull. The seagull was unharmed, by the way. Let's go back to my little housekeeping issue. The room was bad. There was a lot of damage. I was new to my company and I was really trying to make a good impression at this important event. I decided that I would carry on for now and handle the whole thing later. I then realized I only had a few minutes before an important dinner and now I only had one shoe. I made my way to the other side doors and recovered both the shoe and the towel that were laying in some wet soil near the walking path. The shoe was a mess. I took it back to the room. By this time I'd closed the windows and the air was becoming quite ripe with the smell of digested pepperoni and fish. I went into the washroom and rinsed the mud off my shoe. It cleaned up nicely, but now I had one wet dark shoe and one dry light colored shoe. In retrospect, I should have just wet the dry shoe. Instead, I chose to dry the wet shoe using the little hair dryer. It was actually doing quite well. I had the hair dryer jammed in there and the shoe was drying nicely. Then the phone rang. I walked into the next room to answer it and the power goes off. It turns out the hair dryer had vibrated free of the shoe and fallen into the sink full of water and the GFI didn't seem to be 100% functional. I don't know how much of the hotel's power I knocked out, but at that point I decided I needed help. I called the front desk and asked for someone to come and help me clean up a mess. I can still remember the look on the lady's face when she opened the door. I had absolutely no idea what to tell her, so I just said, I'm sorry, and went to dinner. When I came back, my things had been moved to a much smaller room. I thought that was the end of it until I was told by my company that they had received a letter banning me from the Empress, a ban that I have respected for almost 18 years. I have matured and I admit responsibility for my actions. I come to you, hat in hand, to apologize for the damage I had indirectly come to cause and to ask you to reconsider my lifetime ban from the property. I hope you will see fit to either grant me a pardon or consider my 18 years away from the Empress as time served. Thank you very much for your consideration. Sincerely, Nick Birchall. A week later, he posted an update. After reviewing my application for a pardon with the Empress staff, Ryan, the manager, has informed me verbally that I will once again be welcome as a guest. I bet it was the pound of brother's pepperoni that I gave them as a peace offering that did the trick. As always, I am very thankful for all of my patrons and all of my listeners, and I hope everyone has a lovely holiday wherever they are. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. 
I want to thank everyone who listens to the show, particularly someone who checked in with my mom, who's in hospital presently with a broken leg, but she was on morphine, so she doesn't remember who it was that was attending to her that said they listened to the show. But to that person and to everyone, thank you so much for letting me be part of your week. And no matter what happens, we're all in this together. Stay safe. history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts